All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, you guys on the line, I've got Jordan Smith. Now, uh, way back when she was with the Austin Chronicle, and now she's with The Intercept. Of course, we're all boycotting The Intercept uh, because of how horrible they are. Uh, but you can put all of her URLs in archive.is and read her great work anyway. And uh, here she is with Liliana Segura. Melissa Lucio's life was spared at the last minute. What happens now and uh, preceding that was as execution looms, mounting evidence points to Melissa Lucio's innocence. Welcome back to the show, Jordan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, very happy to have you here. And I've been a fan of your work for, I don't know, 20 years, 30, 25, <laughs> something. Um <laughs> Always great stuff, and looks like you saved somebody's life here. Who's Melissa Lucio? Oh, boy. Melissa Lucio uh, is a mother from the Rio Grande Valley, first Latina on Texas's death row, was slated for execution on Wednesday the 27th, and the Court of Criminal Appeals stepped in Monday afternoon to kind of put the brakes on and send the case back to Cameron County, back to Harlingen, for a sort of an evidentiary hearing based on a bunch of evidence that points to her innocence. All right. So tell me the whole damn story. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So in 2007, Melissa Lucio is living with her partner in a kind of rundown apartment. Um, and she had 12 kids at the time. Uh, the youngest of which was Mariah. She was a toddler. She, Melissa kind of has had a really sort of tragic, trauma-filled life. She'd been repeatedly sexually abused as a child, was a victim of domestic violence, you know, was living on the margins, basically, had a drug problem. Um, she had been, had her children taken away by Child Protective Services, and this is kind of important, um, because of neglect, because of the the drug use and, and poverty, which is not a reason to take children away, but often happens. Um, as opposed to, you know, providing the services, just take the kids and put them in foster care. And we know how that goes in Texas. But at any rate, um, the kids had been taken away. She had worked on her family reunification plan and got the kids back. They were living in this kind of dumpy apartment that, importantly, was up a very tall flight of stairs that was kind of rickety. Um, and they were getting ready to move in February of 2007. And she was packing. Some of her younger children had gone outside. Next thing she knows, Mariah is missing. She goes outside and Mariah's down, lying on the ground, had fallen down the stairs. This is not unusual for Mariah. She had a congenital sort of foot disorder that made her wobbly. And there had been times when she'd actually been in foster care and had fallen and um, had lost consciousness. So she'd had traumatic brain injury before. Anyway, Melissa kind of, I think the most you could say about culpability here is that she didn't truly appreciate um, sort of uh, that the fall was bad and sort of failed to assess certain signals that Mariah's health was in decline shortly thereafter. 
Um, a couple of days later, as the family's moving into a new apartment, um, Mariah is kind of lethargic and she is put down for a nap and she basically never gets up again. They take her to the hospital emergency room where a sort of cascade of bias begins. Actually, it started at the apartment when the paramedics arrive. They find a constellation of bruises on Mariah's body and everybody decides without any investigation that this child has been horribly abused. And that sort of makes its way all down the chain. That night when they're at the hospital, uh, the cops, of course, show up uh, and they decide as well that this is a case of terrible child abuse. They take Melissa in for interrogation the night her child is is dies and proceed to interrogate her for more than five hours. She hasn't eaten all day. She hasn't like really slept. She's also happens to be pregnant with twins at the time. And they just come at her, just come at her, come at her, come at her and tell her they know she was abused. All the sort of classic interrogation techniques that we know, know for a fact lead to wrong or uh, false confessions are on display here. Next thing you know, she's charged with capital murder because this is an, uh, a young child and is facing the death penalty. And it just sort of goes downhill from there. I mean, the cops who interrogated her, a couple of them went to the, uh, the autopsy the next day. The med the forensic pathologist who ends up testifying made was unequivocal about the fact that she literally took a look at Mariah and decided she was horribly abused. And you have to keep in mind, this is before she's ever done, she hasn't done any internal exam or looked at anything that's going on with this child physically. She just decides this based on looking at her. The Texas Ranger, who was a big feature of her interrogation, similarly decided and <laughs> testified to this quite proudly that he basically looked at her and decided that she had done something wrong. Um, and so she gets put on trial. She has terrible defense counsel, naturally, as we see in these cases over and over again. And she's convicted and sentenced to death row. I think the, another sort of subtext that's going on here where all this sort of forensic confirmation bias is happening. In the back, and then in the background, we have the elected DA, who is a man named Armando Villalobos, who was in a re-election campaign at the time and was fighting a couple problems. Number one, he'd been charged with some serious corruption. And number two, he had an opponent who was making hay over the fact that he had not been um, prosecuting cases of child abuse. So all this sort of toxic brew ends up in Melissa Lucio's trial and she gets convicted. I think it's also important to note that Armando Villalobos then ends up being convicted on federal racketeering charges and is currently in federal custody. He is due to be released in 2025. That's the DA? <laughs> That's the DA mm -hmm. who was on the case at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, and people have made the point that like the cases that he handled, particularly the capital cases, are worthy of, of review on their own because you know, he, I mean, he was convicted on racketeering and bribery and kickback schemes like favors for ending criminal prosecutions in a particular way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the case has been made that, you know, regardless of, of the status of any of those cases, particularly the capital cases prosecuted under Villalobos, deserve review, frankly, just because of the corruption that we know was going on in that office. So, mm -hmm. but then, you know, I, I, it's, it's, um, it's kind of a shock case, I guess, for people who are not terribly familiar with Texas's death penalty. It seems sort of egregious, but it's, you know, as you well know, um, it's sort of par for the course. Uh, Texas's capital scheme is, is just sort of fatally flawed from top to bottom. So it's not terribly surprising that someone like Melissa Lucio ends up on death row. 
she is, you know, it is also, I think, you know, she, the, the, you know, subsequent to her conviction, you know, forensic pathologists and other uh, doctors have looked at the case and say that she, everything that the family said about the fall and then the symptoms that kind of had cropped up after that, the ones that I say, you know, they kind of failed to appreciate what was really happening. Um, they say everything that happened to Mariah is entirely consistent with the fall as a family mm. described. Um, and so those are the things like that are going to be reviewed now. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's like very, <laughs> it's very sobering to think that, if indeed what Melissa Lucy has been saying all along, my child took a spill down the stairs and then died is true, which the experts you know, like overwhelmingly agree is entirely consistent with what happened. Then the state of Texas was just about to execute a woman for a crime that never happened. Right. Um, which again, Texas has done before. Think of Cameron Todd Willingham. They said that he yep. started a fire to kill his kids. Guess what? It was not an arson. And we already executed Willingham. So it's not like this doesn't happen, but it's a particularly sort of egregious, you know, sort of subset of wrongful convictions where you're convicted of something that literally wasn't a crime. Um so that's kind of where we are at this point. Crazy. All right. There's so much here to review. Um yeah. first of all, <laughs> Well, you know, my political hero and greatest American hero is Ron Paul. And <laughs> as he puts, he's so self-deprecating. He says, this is the issue where I've really flip-flopped. And that is that he's now against the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And even though, as he puts it, some criminals really deserve it. However, just look at the statistics. Right. Look at how it breaks down. You just cannot trust the police, the prosecutors, the judges the juries to get this right and it's on the statistics is look at who gets the death penalty it's poor people and minorities and even when you correct for crime rates and everything else rich white people by and large don't get the death penalty for the same type of crimes instead who gets it is this poor dumb mexican lady whose iq is probably 90 who couldn't possibly participate in her own defense in any real way who's got some court-appointed attorney and who's sitting there with a judge if he's not wearing a white hood he at least doesn't give a damn what's true or not and then also in our adversarial system you know i guess the supreme court has ruled that the prosecutors are supposed to seek justice they're not supposed to just win they're supposed to know that they're right or at least you know they say the standards they have to believe they can get a conviction but the standard should also be that they believe that they should get a conviction, that the person really did it. But instead, that's really not what it is. Instead, what it is is it's the diffusion of responsibility. Well, we'll let the jury decide, which means right. go out there and pretend to believe it as best you can and see if you can get it past the jury. And that's the job. doesn't matter who the defendant is. doesn't matter what the accusation is. The cops brought us somebody. And I think I've told you this before, but everybody needs to hear it. Harris <laughs> County DA, uh, assistant DA uh, in my taxi cab 20 years ago, uh, Harris County, that's Houston, everybody, told me that their slogan down at the DA's office is that if they really didn't do it, they'll get out on appeal. And what that means is that anyone the police bring them, they nail them to the wall. 
They do yeah. everything they can to prosecute him. They don't even wonder whether the people really did what they're accused of. That's not their job. Their job is to prosecute. And if they really didn't do it, they'll get out on appeal, which, as Jordan Smith can tell you, is actually not how criminal justice works in Texas. <laughs> that you'll no. get out on appeal if you really didn't do it. Not right. necessarily right. at all. Right. Well, and I think the, the point, too, there is like, well, first of all, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, there's a the saying that nobody pays to go to death row is a saying for a reason. And it's, you're right. It's like people with means buy their way out of problems all the time. Um, and that's why you look at the death row population. It's like minority, low income, uh, like littered with histories of trauma and abuse, ways in which the system failed starting at the beginning. The government failed starting at the beginning, and now that here's the government coming in on the back end to clean it up in the most sort of disgusting way, and also a system that is incredibly fallible, if, if no for no other reason than it's made up of people, right? <laughs> like, making decisions. And then to the point about the prosecutors, I mean, it's so, you know, how many times have we seen, you know, maybe they... You, to the point about doing justice, it's like when finally a lot of these cases come back around and there's new evidence, even DNA evidence, they'll often double down. They will say, well, fine, our theory of the crime, you know, that you did it alone, we're just going to shift that now on the back end. And we're going to say, sure, maybe you didn't do it alone now. So in other words, they'll just kind of double down as a way to kind of pr um, protect that original conviction. Right. You know, in this case, it's it's kind of crazy in that, okay, it's her public defender, her appointed counsel, it's not a public defender, but her appointed counsel right after this trial goes to work for the DA, uh, where he still works now. The judge who sat on the case is now the elected district attorney and I hope you're sitting down, shocker of all shockers, is like completely defending this conviction. Um, and, you know, he was actually, I, I have to kind of hand it to, in a way I'm not used to saying this, but I have to hand it to the Texas House of Representatives and particularly to Jeff Leach, who is a very conservative Republican from North Texas, and then to Democratic Rep. Joe Moody, who's from El Paso, kind of wrangled more than half of the Texas House. I mean, think about that. They really agree on anything, really, um, to such decisive sort of <laughs> majorities. Yeah, that's they amazing. Wrangled, yeah, you know, please, please elaborate about that. I mean, in fact, because isn't it the case that this is a matter where this particular representative, I guess, is saying, hey, 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 yeah, what's right is I mean, right, and we have to do the right thing here when— Politically, like what we're talking about here is public choice theory, right? It's in the interest of all these political actors to do the wrong thing. Well, here's this right. Republican congressman who's saying, actually, I was praying on Sunday and I decided that politics be damned. We have to do the right thing here, right? Yeah, I think Jeff Leach is pretty interesting. You know, he has, this is not necessarily like completely out of the blue for him. A few years ago, and I'm not going to remember because I have pandemic brain to the end and don't remember years anymore, but a number, several years ago, maybe four, five, six, he actually stood up before and said, and he's, you know, sort of an avowed supporter of capital punishment and has, but he kind of like got himself um, a little bit concerned about a guy named Jeff Woods, who's also on Texas death row, who is a party's case. And we've talked about that before. This is like when you're charged with capital murder for something you should have anticipated somebody else would have done, which is 
bonkers. But anyway, that, you know, Jeff Leach started expressing concern about Texas's law of parties, which has been a huge concern of people involved in the criminal justice system forever. Um, and that was the first time we kind of saw him stick his neck out on some capital punishment issues. But this time he is all in. And, you know, when he started sort of campaigning for Melissa Lucio, he still was saying, look, I support capital punishment. And then it kind of, you know, his language has progressed, interestingly, to, you know, he had a comment um, a few weeks ago where he said, you know, if, if you, you know, to say that I'm questioning everything about the death penalty now is an understatement, which is really, really interesting sort of transformation. And who knows where that'll go or if it will. But the point is that he and Joe Moody were able to sort of wrangle all these colleagues to say to Abbott and the Board of Pardons and Paroles, you've got to stop this. Now, you know, it didn't come down to the Board of Pardons and Paroles to stop this. And I think we could say, you know, thankfully, because it's not as though they are, um, I mean, they're cronies, let's face it, right? They're put there by the governor and they generally sort of do what the governor wants. And I don't exactly, it's hard to see how all this political pressure from the majority of the Texas House and and actually, you know, majority of the senators actually came along too, which is an even more conservative body. Um, how that might have played with Abbott, you just never know, right? It could go one way or it could go the other. But you know, the board rarely recommends clemency, and then even rarer still does the governor actually accept those, you know, those recommendations. Mm-hmm. So it was good, I guess, that the court was the one that stepped in here. And as you well know, the Court of Criminal Appeals is is. Um, is uh, problematic. Um, they have a ton of unforced errors in their background, but I think perhaps in this case that goes in their favor. I mean, they're definitely political animals and they can read the writing on the wall. And I think that, that you know, to be cynical, I think they might've stepped in here because of that, because they can see the pressure. There's this mounting sort of evidence. There's this push by these lawmakers and activists from like all over the country were rallying. Um, in support of Melissa Lucio, I mean, they can read that, right? <laughs> and say, okay, I guess we can't even stand aside. And not that that's not in their their nature because they've let plenty of um, questionable um, convictions, you know, they've signed off and escorted them to the, you know, execution chamber quite willingly. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of politics happening here, but at the end of the day, we've come to the right result. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know what to say about that. I, ugh, but we, we are where we are, and it's a good thing. Although, you know, again, this is sort of a beginning, right? So the Court of Criminal Appeals has halted this, and they have sent the case back to uh, Cameron County, to the district attorney, who is the one who has, like, said so far that he thinks this is a good conviction, and who was the one who sat on the bench and was the trial judge in, in 2008, Um to look at, the, they've sent it back to the court to look at four things that, you know, like I said, that there was false testimony from the pathologist who basically, you know, decided upon viewing Mariah's body without even doing anything that, that you know, um, that, that she had been abused and to take into consideration sort of that false testimony in light of other scientific evidence that's far more credible. Um, and to kind of also look at some of the junk science that was applied in this case, from the interrogation techniques to, you know, the the pathologist's bizarre decision that there was a bite mark on the child's back, which nobody, you know, credible thinks is a bite mark. Um, and they're also looking at whether some 
Evidence favorable to Lucio was withheld and suppressed by the state at her original trial. And then finally, to consider whether she is actually innocent of this crime. So one of the problems, of course, is that we always go back to the trial court. <laughs> now, granted, the same judge isn't sitting there, but you're still in the same venue where you were convicted the first time. And that's one of the flaws in the system. But yeah. that's where it goes. So it's, it's still an uphill battle. I think, you know, the way my read is, that I mean, the evidence is clearly on her side. If she can get a fair uh, hearing, it seems to me that this goes favorably for her. Whether the DA will then still insist, you know, on on defending the conviction it remains to be seen. There's a lot of if then kind of things going on here. If this, then that, you know, so it's hard to sort of um, figure out all of the potential kind of uh, scenarios that play out. But I think it's fair to say that the case will probably end up back in front of the court of criminal appeals again at some point. Um, And I guess we'll just have to see. And who knows, you know, there's, we'll see how quickly it'll play out. You know, if any, <laughs> if we know anything, if history tells us anything, this will take a while. Yeah. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. The audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code Scott and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Hey guys, Scott Horton here for Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. As you may know, the audiobook of my new book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally out. It's co-produced by our longtime friends at Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. For many years now, Derek Sheriff over there at Listen and Think has offered lifetime subscriptions to anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org donate or to the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org donate. And they've got a bunch of great titles, including Inside Syria by the late, great Reese Ehrlich. That's listenandthink.com. All right, now, so I'm glad you brought up the bites and all that. Let's go yeah. back to the case here a little bit. Was there anyone else who witnessed the fall other than the mom here? Well, mom didn't see the fall, but oh, she just found her at the bottom of the stairs. She found her, yeah. She was yeah. going to look for her. But the kids, were there any yeah. other adults around at that time, or teenage kids, or anything? Who- there were kids around at that time, a number of them, and that's actually part of the suppressed documents that we're talking about here. Are the kids said um, that night at the police station when there was an investigator from Child Protective Services that came in to talk to them, and they said, "We saw Mariah fall. We saw Mariah fall." Mariah then started acting weird. Did you see bruises on Mariah before this? No, I only saw bruises on Mariah after she fell. I propose that the judge and the district attorney be sentenced to death. <laughs> well, I don't know, uh, but I will say they are the th- those documents were then withheld, right? Like. So there was, and they played some sort of, there was some trickery. Okay, I suggest they be held accountable in any conceivable way at all. 
Well, I'm a fan of that for sure. <laughs> it doesn't happen all that often though, you know? Um, but I, the thing that's also interesting that's kind of happening in the background. I mean, think too, about that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a little, uh, I'm please. stuck on the last point here. Yeah. So like, let's say for example, your mom was charged with murdering your little sister mm -hmm. and you saw your little sister fall and you told the police, I saw my little sister fall. And then the cops and the prosecutors and the judge all conspired to hide that from the jury and sentence your mother to death for murdering your little sister. Yep. What should happen to the CPS, the cops, the DA, the judge who conspired to bury that evidence? I, I think, think a hanging is too good for them all. <laughs> this I woman's on death row until the day before yesterday. Yeah. yeah. They conspired to murder her. Yeah. I will take That's will, a murder plot. You got to take CPS out of that equation. They actually tried to do the right thing, but there's some um Did they show up at the trial and say, "Your honor, we well, talked to the kids. We demand to testify for the defense." Well, there's some indication that there were some threats happening um from the state to the you know, via the the prosecutor's office to CPS. That oh, yeah. Killed. Tell me about that. Well, I don't know all the details on that. We will certainly hear more as this goes on, and we can get into that then. I don't know. I'm not privy to all the details of that now, but there are allegations that are out there, which I think after we go back to this evidentiary hearing thing, we'll hear far more about. So you just talked me back into supporting the death penalty, but only for government employees who conspire <laughs> to withhold evidence in capital crime cases. That's all. Okay, just for well, them. And go. war criminals. Very targeted. Very targeted. Mm. Um, um, I will say, though, that, you know, I think the other thing that's happening and that should be happening, I think, uh, today or, or or early next week is there is <laughs> there are two motions sitting down in Cameron County. One is to recuse the the D.A. because uh, from from, you know, sitting on this case at all anymore because uh, he's they think, you know, their argument is he's conflicted out because Lucio's former defense attorney is now in that office. So there's that motion pending. The second one that's pending is a motion to recuse the judge who's sitting at that court right now. Why? Because her court administrator also worked on um, Lucio's defense. So the claim from Lucio's lawyers is that they're both conflicted out. So the first thing that will happen is the judge will decide. <laughs> this is a little bit like, you know, Kafkaesque. The judge will decide if the judge should recuse herself. <laughs> um, and if she does, then another judge will be assigned to it. Um, either way, after she recuses herself or does not, then whoever the judge is, her or someone else, will then decide whether the DA's office should be recused. I don't know you know, to not recuse them it has that sort of taint and stink on it. But again, I also could see a scenario where they're just like, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not going to recuse myself. I'm not going to recuse the DA's right. office either. Yeah, exactly. So. That's what's in their interest, right? Yeah. Um, okay, now, um, you mentioned the bite mark there. Yeah. And this is, it sounds like a big deal, um, you know, in your article, the way it reads is, you know, the contrast between the reality and the narrative here is as great as any war lie ever told on CNN where you have this claim and then you have the evidence and the but the claim is one that leads to such an emotional type of a reaction 
and you could see why the fools on the jury, once fooled, made the decision that they made when they came across this evidence as portrayed by the state here, right? Yeah. I mean, I've written a bunch about bite mark mark evidence, and just to be clear, it's complete junk. And um, the Innocence Project in particular has done a lot of work over the last decade to free people who were convicted solely or primarily based on bite mark evidence. It's been a real journey to get it considered junk. And in fact, even the Court of Criminal Appeals has now concluded that bite mark evidence is junk, mm-hmm. as has the Texas Forensic Science Commission, which... Um, and I have to say, too, I mean, Radley Balco did this, I think, yeah. a series for the Washington Post he that did. absolutely should have won him a Pulitzer about this. I mean, yeah. he, spent, he wrote, I don't know, 100,000 words on it or something. It's just incredible. <laughs> he did. He did. He he just completely took it apart from the beginning to the end. It was a great series. I think it was from like 2014 or 2015. Mm. It's worth checking out. Um, But, you know, but the the, the thing is, I mean, first of all, it is junk. 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 Um, There is literally no scientific underpinning to it. It's all subjective guesswork. And here's where it's super problematic is that it's incredibly inflammatory, right? It's like, one expert was telling me, he's like, okay, look, he's like, let's say my wife dies in our house. Well, fingerprints aren't going to be that, you know, valuable because I live there, right? And so there's a reason for my fingerprints to be all over there. But if they find a mark on my wife that looks like it fits my teeth, well, then now it's me, right? And not only is it me, but look at me, I'm an animal, right? Not only do I kill my wife, but I bite her. The idea of biting is very sort of animalistic and it brings this, it's very inflammatory and prejudicial, right? So, you know, the the guys who advocated for bite mark testimony in the 70s and uh, as it was kind of gaining steam and in the 80s and its heyday really considered it far more valuable and, you know, inculpatory evidence than fingerprints. I mean, they prided themselves on that because what's more definitive than somebody, you know, taking a chunk out of somebody and then saying, oh, yeah, that matches your teeth, Scott. <laughs> like, it's kind of hard to defend against that. And you look really sort of savage in the process. Right. And, and you know, Balco shows where some cockamamie judge had ruled that you're not allowed to challenge the evidence as presented and say, like, a defense attorney is not allowed to say, oh, yeah, well, which of these five sets of false teeth are the ones that match those marks and, like, test the skill of the guy in front of the jury? No, no, no. We have a thing already where if the bite mark science guy says so, then you have to accept that's the science. Right. You know, like, it's some cult. Yeah, I mean, you know, in that ruling, there was an original ruling from the 70s that basically it's, it's really important cases called it was a California cases called State v. Marks. And, and the thing is, that's what's really interesting about it is that like, yes, this 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 case from the 70s opened the door to bite mark testimony being um accepted in courts all over the country. But but there's another thing that it did as well, is that it also sort of blessed the other, what we call pattern matching forensics, okay? And that's anything from fingerprints to tire treads or shoe prints to hair microscopy to- Oh, uh, these hairs are similar, ballistic. Jordan. They're yeah. similar, I tells you. Exactly. To ballistics and to firearms analysis. All of these things are get in the door with little scrutiny based actually after this Marks case. And it's been incredibly difficult to unring that bell. Um, and and the, the problem is like fingerprints are on a little bit better footing. And the people who work in that field, some of whom I know fairly well, 
are working really hard to like come up with error rates and figure out the ways in which they can testify in a more sort of narrow way about the strength or relative strength of a fingerprint match. Um, but there are a lot, you know, uh, shoe prints, tire marks. I mean, and, and another one, tool marks is like huge in ballistics, right? Like these things are not being put on, on, you know, really firm scientific ground. And we should be very concerned about that. And very, very skeptical when you hear, um, you know, this gun matched this, mm. this crime. Well, now in this case, yeah, the baby falls down the stairs. I believe you report here that you got other doctors who are saying, look, the baby's back was just scratched by the stairs on the way yeah. down the damn stairs. That's all. But then right. from the very beginning, yeah. or at some point, very near the beginning, they announced that this sick woman, as she was beating her baby to death, savagely bit her on the back like the way Bill Clinton bit Juanita Broderick on the face while he was raping her, like some savage animal. So no wonder then the jury is going, oh my God, this lady must have been going completely psycho, savagely right. beating her baby to death in this way. Right. Yep. Yeah. And it was all based on these claims by these government employees who... Your journalism says uh, you you have other experts who say that th they were just wrong about that. Is that correct? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. There's a there's a dentist who used to be a big believer in bite marks. I've known for a really long time. Who now basically considers it his mission to undo the damage that that dentists like him have done. And you know, even if you were to let's like for the sake of argument, for one second, let's pretend that there was like something to sort of undergird this bite mark testimony. The way in which it's applied, which I unfortunately know how they do their work <laughs> for years, like you look at this injury and there's just like no way, even applying their very sort of rudimentary subjective techniques in which you could could claim this as a bite mark, right? So it's like even under their own theory of things, it doesn't work. Um, and, and certainly the pathologist, you know, was just like, she testified basically that she'd been told by a dentist that it was a bite mark. Well, no dentist ever supplied a report. No dentist ever testified. So it was just like this, like, you know, sort of rudderless testimony from this pathologist that really, you know, puts this into the case in a way it should never have gotten in there. It just never should have been there. But if you look at the injury and if you say for a minute, Okay, a fall happened. Yeah, when you look at it, it totally looks consistent with the idea. It, 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 you know, you can't necessarily explain what that injury came from, but you can look at it in light of what the, the story was, right? And is that consistent? Is that a plausible explanation? It absolutely is. I think the other thing about, about trying to decide what happened, it's kind of important to know, is that child abuse is a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning you don't just say, oh, hey, check out these bruises and stuff, child abuse. You have to go through and look at sort of what is the scenario that the family says happened or whoever was there at the time, right? Right. And then you look at the sort of medical facts and the histology and like the actual internal examinations. And your job then is to say, what are the plausible medical explanations for these injuries? Right. And That's the pilot episode of King of the Hill. You did talk you, to the baseball coach, right? To see whether that? Bobby really got hit in the head with a baseball or not? Right, oh, right. he did. Okay, sorry. Case closed. Exactly. So if you can say all these things are consistent, then you don't even get to child abuse, right? It's only if you can rule out all these other things as inconsistent with the evidence in front of you that you then would, would, would consider 
a diagnosis of child abuse. And instead, they inverted the process here and was just like, I see bruises, horribly abused. Okay. And then the medical inquiry stops. And that's it. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, they've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta 8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta 9. So they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town. But then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally. Because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. Thehempspot.com. Spell V-T-H-C. You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say, it's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. Some of y'all have a problem. You've got chickens, but you don't want to stand around throwing food at them all day because of all the important stuff you have to do. Well, the solution to that is to get the Free Range Feeder from FreeRangeFeeder.com. The Free Range Feeder has been developed to satisfy the needs of the poultry, chicken hobbyist, and the homesteader. The convertible design allows for four different mounting methods. Go to FreeRangeFeeder.com Scott or use promo code Scott to get 15% off and get the free ebook. Subscribe to their newsletter to immediately receive your free copy of Getting Started with Backyard Chickens. That's freerangefeeder.com slash Scott. All right, and now talk, please, about this forced confession, because I know we see this all the time. You know, in the days of George W. Bush especially, and Obama was doing it too, people would say, torture doesn't work. But that was assuming the premise that what you want is the truth. But that's not what torture's for. Torture's for getting the answer you want. Torture does work. Sure, sure. And it could be very light, as as the CIA calls it. No-touch torture. Not even dosing you with LSD. They can just pressure you in a way that it amounts to torture, and you'll give in. Yeah, I mean, so the predominant way in which cops have been taught to interrogate for the last, oh God, decades, is something called the Reed Technique. It really doesn't have any science underneath of it. And it's incredible. It's a guilt presumptive process. And, you know, it, it, it just goes in assuming that you're guilty and then sort of applies these pressures across the interrogation in order to get you to, to admit your guilt. It's a deeply flawed process, and it's what they operated on here. Um, Every single time that Melissa tried to explain about the fall, they either just dismissed it outright or interrupted her. Um, There's two main things that happen in these kinds of interrogations. One are called maximization strategies. And so that's like, um, you know, we know that you killed her. So just tell us that you killed her and like really put the pressure on heavy that you know what happened and you now have to comply with this thing. The other flip side of it is a minimization strategy where they say, look, I mean, everybody gets frustrated with their kids, right? So everybody will understand you didn't mean to kill her. You just 
lost control because you were just so overwhelmed, right? So it's the idea that it's not so bad, that maybe there's some, you know, everybody can understand it. There's some underlying reason why this happened. And it cuts really close to the line of the, what are basically the only thing that is illegal in these contexts, which is promising favors. I mean, that would be if I directly said to you, look, Scott, you know, if you just tell me you did this, you totally, we're not going to charge you with a death penalty. I mean, you can't do that. Like, that's illegal. But the minimization strategies that cops use in these scenarios come right up to that line and arguably do that, <laughs> but without literally saying the words, right? Mm. <clears throat> um, because you can imply in all manner of ways that things will just go better for you and that it will be understood, you know, that you just lost control, like you were just frustrated, you have all these kids. Certainly it doesn't, you know, it's not that unusual and people will understand. I mean, if that's not sort of an implied leniency, I don't know what is. But that's that's kind of what they did. They ignored her at every turn and interrupted her. They, you know, she said, they said, well, do you ever spank your kids? Like, that's not illegal. And so she says, sure, yeah, I spank my kids. And then they change spanking into hitting. And then they change it, you know, they they keep upping the sort of um, the severity of, of a spank. A spank becomes a beating, right? And so they just sort of feed her these things. And then you read the, you see the interrogation and then read the transcript. And it's like, she's just regurgitating back to them what they're saying to her, which is, of course, another huge red flag when you're talking about uh, confessions. Um, the other thing that they did, which a lot of cops will do, which is just, is they will share with you evidence, right? So, or give you something that only a perpetrator would know in, in a case where we know there's a crime, right? Like and is, it, is it fair to say here, Jordan, too, that yeah. she's too ignorant to know to understand what it means that she can have a lawyer here. She needs a lawyer here to help her talk to these people that her life is on the line and all these things. Like this I, is a, a pretty poor and, and uh, disadvantaged person. I agree. I agree that she is. And I, from seeing the interrogation and reading it, I am, I have very deep reservations and concerns about whether she understood her Miranda rights as they were given to her. Um, I, I don't think that she fully appreciated what was going on, but you have to understand also that like, this is a woman who is <laughs> naturally reeling from the death of her child at right. this moment. So yeah, she's just a couple of hours ago or whatever. Right. So she's right, probably out of right. her mind anyway. Yeah. She's got this fresh trauma that's happening right now as these cops are coming at her, but she also has a lot of abuse in her history. And that actually, you know, kind of can trigger, right. When you're in those kinds of environments, can trigger responses, acquiescing. I mean, you know, people who have been abused, like it's not uncommon to acquiesce to this sort of stern and abusive behavior. So she had a lot of disadvantages. And and frankly, what we know are risk factors for false confessions. And I frankly, say, like, you know, if your kid falls down the stairs on your watch, yeah. then that's kind of your fault. And that's maybe entirely your fault. And she probably felt really guilty about that, too. They're like, oh, geez, I mean, you know, what am I going to do? You guys put it this way. I put it that way. But like, yeah, I did going to do it, you know, in a way. You're totally right. And I think that's also what's like, I'm glad you brought that up, because what's kind of really interesting about this is this interrogation does not lead to a confession in the way that most people would think of it. In fact, Melissa Lucio <laughs> across i mean this her interrogation she's at the hospital at like seven something that night her inter actual interrogation doesn't begin till 10 p.m and they keep her till after three in the morning um and yet 
during all this time, when they ask her if she killed her child, she is adamant that she did not and says she does not know what happened. But what and the, the way in which this is a confession is she basically starts to acquiesce and they, they show her photos. This is the other technique that's bad. That's going back to sh- sharing evidence, basically, right? They start showing her photos of Mariah's body, which is is very bruised, and, and there's reason for that, uh, like a normal medical reason for that. But they start showing her these things, and she's like reeling, and they're saying, well, tell us how this mark happened. Tell us how this mark happened. So she's like, I guess I hit her, and that's where the bite thing comes up. So like, tell us about this bite mark. Well, I guess I bit her. So there is false confessing happening in here where she's taking responsibility for things that like literally um, – were part of the medical condition, like, you know, were, were things that were consequent to the fall, right? And and not child abuse. There's literally no history of abuse um, of any of her children in their entire history. And that's, you know, with CPS on your back, you'd think they'd know, right? Um, well, and her so kids are all 10 years older now, 13, 14 years older now. So they can help tell that story, you know, much yeah. better in their own words now, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and her kids have wrote very forcefully as part of her clemency package that, you know, that that, that they know that their mother didn't do anything wrong and that executing her would only tra- re-traumatize them. They'd lose not only their sister, but they will lose their mom to something that was an accident. I mean, it's pretty potent stuff. I don't know, Jordan. Finality is very important. If uh, people can just second guess judges' decisions all the time, why the whole damn system might unravel. Isn't that exactly what a federal appeals court had ruled before? Well, yeah. The Finality, notion- Uber Alice? Yeah. Finality is a problem. <laughs> I mean, the notion of finality... The idea that the wheels will come off the bus, though, if we if we revisit questionable convictions, I think is just bullshit. To be frank, like it's just you I know, wish it I was true. People, <laughs> well, I know people have it's this a good place to start. That, you know, I know that I, that people have this like notion that everybody in prison claims they didn't do it. In my experience, it's absolutely not true. Um, the cases where people are adamant that they didn't do something are not all that common um, and should be paid attention to. And there's real easy ways to sort of sort through uh, claims you think are are legit and not. So the notion that we have to have this finality lest like everybody and their mother will suddenly, you know, be like claiming they're innocent. I just, you know, in my experience, that's just not the case. Yeah. And, and also, you know, to an extent, it's like, I mean, I feel like obviously that would be sort of unwieldy and I don't think that would happen. But at the same time, the system is supposedly designed so that a, a guilty person is better to have a guilty person free than an innocent one convicted. And I truly think that's the case. Right. Like we have killed innocent people. I know. Um, and, you know, you brought up Willingham before, and that is an important one. People might not remember. It's been a little while now, but uh, yeah. there was a house fire and his daughters died and they just BSed all this stuff about uh you know, the uh, pattern of the fire and blamed it on him. And uh, they executed the guy. And I don't remember anymore the name of the thing, but there was a Kevin Spacey movie where essentially he framed himself for murdering his wife and tricked the government into prosecuting him and executing him. And then only the evidence comes out. I'm spoiling the movie. The evidence comes out at the end that he didn't really do it. She just died. And then he framed himself just to prove that here, you, you can no longer deny it. It's a fact. Now, the state of Texas executed an innocent guy. And then that was supposed to be like, well, now 
comeuppance, right? Now, accountability. Now, the whole damn system has to screech to a halt and we have to figure out something else to do, right? That was the premise of that film, was that if that ever happened, if it was ever proven that they executed an innocent person or, say, came this close like they did the day before yesterday um, to executing this innocent woman here, that that should mean everybody stop. What are we doing? How can we let government that you wouldn't trust to educate your kid, uh, how would you let them decide who to kill or not? Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. Agree there, for sure. I mean, yeah. And, you know, we've done (laughs) that. There's, you know, Willingham, which nobody thinks now. I can't think of anybody credible who thinks that that the fire at Willingham's house was arson. Um, the science reveals that it wasn't. So I kind of tend to trust the science. Um, and, you know, and we've, we've killed, we have at least another one on our hands that, I mean, I, I, Willingham is like more like Lucio in that it's a no crime case, right? Like right. if, you know, which is deeply, deeply disturbing. Just um, to clarify, also- you mean where there actually wasn't even a crime at all. It was just a thing that happened. And then the government twisted it into a thing. As opposed to somebody who clearly was murdered, but they just blamed it on the wrong guy or that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like Willingham's case, Lucio's case, no crime case. They're like a subset. And I'm saying you got another one like this going on in Texas now? No, oh. no, 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 no. Oh, I misunderstood. Else. Lord, yeah, no. But I mean, you know, that's a, it's a subset of wrongful convictions, and right. they should be. They should give everybody very, very big pause, right? Like, yeah, that is. It's not just getting the wrong person for a murder, which of course is egregious in itself, but it's literally prosecuting something for something that didn't happen, yeah. right? Um, and and, and this is hard for people, Jordan, as you know, and especially in specializing in crime as you do. That there are some criminals who absolutely have sacrifice their own right to continue being alive and where you could figure that if not the kin of the victim but that somehow society at large has a right to put this dog down for some of the things that people do to innocent people i mean it's i don't need to get into details everybody knows how bad some crimes can be but the problem is this is our security force and they just cannot be trusted to get it right. You can, uh, and we see them constantly. You see innocent people released from prison after decades. But yeah. if they're still alive, they can be released if they hadn't died in the meantime in prison. But once you execute them, that's way too late to ever correct it. And it just seems like it's just too big. Uh, you know what? Just lock them in prison and we'll have to settle for that. Um, you know, because it's just. You know, again, I'll make exceptions for judges and prosecutors and war criminals. But even then, you know, like if if a prosecutor prosecuted another prosecutor, you would know that this is corruption. This isn't justice. This is just some faction taking revenge with state power in a corrupt way anyway. Right. There's just you got to throw away this power. There's no way to allow these people to have this authority. You know, it's crazy. I, I totally agree. <laughs> I'm just ranting and raving all over your interview. But no. I mean, look at this case. This is insane. You know, I I pulled up your story this morning and I saw the headline was race to save her by the 27th. And I went, oh my God, the 27th was two days ago. So I put her name in the thing to see if they had murdered her or not. And then yeah. thank God I found that, no, she had been saved at the last minute. Your article may well have tipped the balance here. 
I mean, just think about that. If it wasn't Jordan Smith writing about this, we might be on the other side of the line right now and this lady be dead. That ain't fair. What the hell kind of system is that? I think you have a really good point there, which I, I would, I think that, you know, there's a woman from France who did a documentary about, uh, Melissa's case a few years ago. It's called the state of Texas versus Melissa. And, and, and then she made a really good point the other day, which we included in this, in our, the, le- the most recent story that we did is that, you know, the state in order to do what it's going to do and, and put someone like Melissa to death sort of depends on the anonymity of these cases and nobody looking too closely. And and I think this woman, her name is Sabrina Van Tassel, I think she was absolutely right in what she was saying is that the state wanted to do this and they wanted to do it without anybody looking or knowing who Melissa was. And she really wanted people to know who Melissa was. She did the, the movie and then Liliana and I started actually writing stories about it. I think we were the first national outlet to do so. And then suddenly, you know, it's like everybody kind of knows who Melissa was. And that kind of goes back to the point I was making before, which is like the court of criminal appeals. Did they step in out of the goodness of their own heart? I don't think so. <laughs> right. So it's like it takes people raising the profile of these things. If nobody had really questioned this, this stuff, the lawyers could have written wonderful briefs making all these claims. And I think you could see a scenario where they make wonderful arguments and the court just dismisses them, right? And just, it's like, well, we've ruled on this case before, so I don't see any problem here. Um, It's kind of scary that it takes the sort of um, media attention and activists' attention to, to, to raise the profile so that the state just can't walk, you know, sort of dark in the dark and just sort of put people to, be- to death yeah. claiming that they're doing the right thing, which is, you know, how they roll. Um, and well, that's not- why you're my hero. I mean, look <laughs> at the great example that you set. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls out there, it doesn't get done unless somebody does it. You got to do the work or the lady gets executed. And... Jordan Smith has proved that. She gets up in the morning, does the work, and then the lady's still alive. See how that is? Somebody's got to step in. Maybe that's you. You know? That's what I think. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Everybody, that's Jordan Smith. She used to be at the Austin Chronicle, but now she's at The Intercept. But just put the link in archive.is because we're boycotting The Intercept. I like Trevor Aronson still. Uh, as execution looms, mounting evidence points to Melissa Lucio's innocence. It's uh, co-written also with Liliana Segura as well. Thank you so much, Jordan, again. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.